Well, welcome to a very noisy restaurant in Oxford. Um, it's another episode of This Writing Life, and I'm very pleased to be talking to Amit Chowdhury, whose career I think would take the rest of this entire hour to describe. A musician, novelist, poet, critic, teacher. Anything else? Have I left anything? <laughs> Football. <laughs> Who's in Oxford to talk primarily about his new novel, um, Odysseus Abroad. Welcome to Oxford. It's a place that you're familiar with, we, you were just saying, off, off recorder. <laughs> Very familiar with, yeah. It, in fact, my second novel is set in Oxford. It's about my graduate days, Afternoon Rug. Okay. Yeah, I mean, about my graduate days, in a manner of speaking. It's, it's a novel. So it's about Oxford. And um, I was a student here. I did my DPhil, my doctorate here, reluctantly. I published my first two novels before I finished my doctorate. Wow. Uh, so because, I mean, because I kind of dawdled and dragged my feet through the doctorate deliberately. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> to, to, to produce works of fiction rather produce than... Produce works of fiction. Uh, as I was saying to you, uh, or maybe I shouldn't say that. No, no I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was, uh, I was, I mean, academic, academics was a, was a kind of strategy uh, to, to basically... Very much achieve my real ambition, which was to be a published writer, and towards the beginning to be a poet of, of renown, you know, okay. yes. <laughs> and then I gave that up, and, uh, and the, the idea of writing a novel came to me in my gap year between University College London, where I did my first degree, and before coming to Oxford, and I began writing the novel in the gap year, and continued writing it when I was into my PhD over here, published it, published another novel set in Oxford, and actually I think the reviews came out a week before my Viva. Yeah, yeah. I took six years to finish that defil. I was thinking of it like you abandoning uh, my PhD. I thought that would be the only honourable thing for a, for, a, for a real writer to do. Uh, but then my Indian family and genes probably took over. And you had to finish. So I had to finish. I feel even more ashamed. <laughs> so, but without any, as, again, without an ambition of, of actually making, wanting to be an academic. Okay. Yeah. But just in case I completely failed as a writer. <laughs> that, that was your, your background. Not mine, my, well, my wife's. I'd met her okay. in 1990, we married in 1991. And, and, and she, I think it was because of her that I felt my, my, my parents would have been unhappy if I had given up on the PhD, although they never put their foot down about anything. So, but, but, but my wife said, you, you should finish it. So I did finish it, uh, and, and, uh, and those were my years as a student in Oxford, and then I continued to live in Oxford. I, I think I was here for quite a few years, so out of my 16 years in England, comprising London, Cambridge, and Oxford, I was in, in, in Oxford maybe for 10 years. Did you find it an inspirational place, if it's the place where you began seriously writing fiction? Yeah. Uh, or was it, was no, it just I coincidental? I didn't find it inspirational. Okay. Yeah. I, I just found it more easier to manage my experience of Oxford than I did of London in the early 80s. Um, and, um, but I, I, mean, I... I still kind of was surprised by the way students, for instance, kept to themselves, students in literature kept to themselves and uh, were not really interested in talking about literature. I mean, th 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 that as a kind of mode of being for 
students over here was something that I couldn't quite understand. What were they talking about, uh, if not? <laughs> Maybe, I don't know, uh, their girlfriends? I have no idea. I have no idea what they were talking about. We, but there was no kind of forum for, for discussing things. Not that I'm a great forum kind of person, but I was just kind of uh, uh, surprised by that. So, so in fact, it, it, I think it was probably, I arrived as a, here, as I said, in 1987, so eight, it, probably in 89 was when I met my friend Peter D. McDonald, who, um, to whom I was assigned as a mentor. Uh, so, so Oxford University at that time had this peculiar thing going, um, maybe in the English faculty but elsewhere as well, which was to assign an existing graduate student as a mentor to a, an incoming graduate student to ease the incoming graduate student into graduate life. Okay. So I found I was assigned as a mentor to one Peter D. McDonald, who was, as it happened, from South Africa. And, um, and I completely ignored it. So, yeah, but then my, Peter wrote me a postcard saying that, you know, I'm looking forward to meeting you. And, and so that was one friendship that happened in Oxford. He teaches now in Oxford, and, and in fact he'll be in conversation with me this evening okay. about the book. Uh, so, so, so it's a long association, a long, rather peculiar association as an outsider uh, to this city. But, uh, but I still feel in some ways closer to it in, my, in terms of my recollection and other things. Probably because I met my wife here, I met a very, very close friend, a dear friend over here. Then I do to London, for okay. instance. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious what you said about London, and we'll return to it because that's very much the setting subject of, yeah, of a district abroad. One thing I was interested in what you just said is, is you, there was a, a sense of disappointment maybe about a lack of a literary culture, literary debate. Did you have expectations coming here, uh, coming to England? I, 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 I say this probably because I remember talking to Thomas Keneally mm. who said that when he first arrived in England from Australia he, he assumed that the, the streets were, were, were going to be filled with discussions about Thomas Hardy and yeah. that this was, this was the centre of a kind of literary yeah. world um, he, he expressed this with, with full uh, uh, sort of <laughs> sardonic yeah. knowledge of, the, um, of, of his place as a, a colonial yeah. um, and then was incredibly disappointed to find that, in fact, the literary culture that he'd been involved in in Australia was far, in a way, far richer. Was, that, was there any sense of similarity? Of, of, of um, probably. I mean, um, I had been visiting uh, London and, and England from the early 70s. So okay. the first time I came here was in 1973. Okay. Um, and, and that was partly because my father worked for a company and then ran that company, a company which made biscuits and which was which had been set up by the, the, the owners of a long, long time ago by the owners of Huntley and Palmer's and, and Jacobs and the same group of biscuit manufacturing companies. And, and so there was this, that connection probably and, and so I, I would visit London with them occasionally. I think I must have come here three times in the 70s. So I had already become familiar with a particular version of England. Also become familiar with my uncle, whom I would eventually write about in this right. novel. And um, and so that was uh, that was a Britain emerging from um, all kinds of things and also getting into other kinds of things. So it was emerging maybe from 
the, the, the National Front, Enoch Powell's speech, etc. But then also it was edging more and more towards becoming a third world country. And, you know, you had the three-day week and all of which was changed by, by Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> uh, and and then, then I finally came here as a student in the early 80s and then, then to, to Oxford. Now, um, when I came to Oxford, yes, it is true that I expected there to, me, to be a, a more uh, edgy and vibrant uh, intellectual life. Uh, and there was nothing. Uh, <laughs> and nothing that I could access. Um, and um, and I would say that other cultures, maybe in, in India, maybe who knows, maybe in Australia, I have no idea, but certainly in India and maybe in Europe, uh, that students engage in a more intellectual and politicized life uh, than, than they did over here, or what that than I encountered over here. It's fine. I, I, I myself was uh, not political simply because I didn't feel easy with with, with groups. But 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 the fact that there should be nothing to sort of uh, no circle to frequent in terms of a conversation was something that uh, took me aback a little bit, and also the fact that uh, the number of mediocre students to to in proportion to the number of really good ones would be exactly the same in Oxford as it was anywhere else okay. was also interesting it, you know you just realize that just because it's Oxford doesn't mean that there are brilliant people everywhere uh, the, the, the kind of proportion is more or less the same as anywhere else I and mean, even if you go to a small university somewhere I'm sure you're going to meet some really interesting mm. and brilliant people mm. uh, and, and this, the same was true here that you, were, you would maybe chance upon somebody <laughs> yeah. You said earlier that you'd written about graduate days. Why, why did you choose to, to rewind now and uh, write about undergraduate days? But it, in some ways, that feels like almost just the that's a almost like a little skeleton on which all sorts of other issues um, yeah. and ideas and relationships and and really thought thoughts. I mean, it's a, it's a novel about thought processes and, and perceptions and perceiving. Um, why, why, why now to write? It almost feels like a first novel, I suppose. In some, in some ways, I wanted to. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, should I take that as a compliment? Yes. Okay, I take it <laughs> yeah, as a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> because first yes. novels have a, have a kind of freshness about it, mm. so I'm taking a com- yeah, it as a compliment. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> um, I think um, the, the, the idea of um, using this material. Of, of what my life was like as an undergraduate, but of what also of what it meant to to meet up with my uncle once or twice right. a week. Um, that material was always there, but I never thought. I mean that I I never had any so impulse of fictionalizing it or writing a novel about it. <coughs> um, what would I say about it? You know, um, but that 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 only happened when. A particular kind of convergence with Homer's Odyssey took place in my head, right. um, and 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 that I'll tell you how that happened. Yeah, no, I... I, yeah. So that that's the kind of um, 
backstory to how the novel, mm. has, uh, how the concept of the novel uh, comes to my head. So um, the the person on whom I based the uncle, who's called Ranga Mama, or Radhesh is his name, um, was is he's based on an, an actual uncle, okay. <laughs> actual maternal uncle. Um, and in fact, I haven't changed his name. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's dead now. Yeah. And um, partly I've done, done that as a homage to him, as a tribute to him, as a, as a peculiar kind of tribute. Yeah. But, but it's still a tribute. Uh, um, and, and, um, and he, um, well, he'd been living in London for many, many years. So I first met him in 1973 when I first came here. And then I uh, would spend time with him on subsequent visits. He was very close to my father. He was my father's best friend when they were growing up together in, in Silhet, in, which is now in Bangladesh. And was, is it true that your mother was his, his, his sister? His sister. Okay. So, so he, he is my mother's older brother, older by maybe a year. Okay. Um, so, so then... Um, in, when I came here in the early 80s as a student, he was almost my only human contact, uh, you know. Um, so, mm, so I would spend time with him. I was fond of him, but also exasperated by him. Uh, and, and because of the kind of person he was. Now, he was a person who'd done quite well in his job. He worked in shipping, which is anyway quite a you know, lucrative sort of career to have. Worked for for the for the biggest shipping company in in Britain, and but he still lived like a tramp. And he still lived in the, the so that's absolutely as you describe in the novel. Yeah, so he still lived in the bedsit that he in the building he'd moved to as a student, and to which he'd been brought by my parents in the late fifties because they were worrying that this very gifted man had sabotaged his own career and he was doing nothing. He was. Uh, working as a used car salesman in Shillong, which is in uh, near at that time was in Assam. And did he sab- did he say did he sabotage those exams in the way that you described that he almost yeah. <laughs> almost contemptuously yeah. couldn't quite be bothered to he had all kinds of phobias about okay. about things and so uh, one exam when he was quite young he sabotaged because he felt that he he might get a venereal disease by 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 touching a t- touching the pages of books. So, you know, I mean, so he had all kinds okay. of things going on in his head. Um, so, so when I met him, he was still living in that building, 24 Belsize Park, and in the bedsit. He had a lot of money, but he lived like a tramp, as I said. And um, it was only in 1991, when I got married, that I persuaded him to come to, to, to India, to Calcutta, after three decades, yeah, to attend my wedding. And, and after much kind of persuasion and persuading, he gave in and, and he came back. He had always protested that he didn't want to meet his relatives again and, um, and he, he felt no homesick, homesickness for India. But once he came back to, when, once he went back to India, he didn't want to come back here. I mean, so, really? so much in love was he actually with kind of just life over there. So he, he was living there, he had no property to his name, he was living there with other people, he used to live with his brother in Calcutta, 
all through the 90s, he lived in that way. And then, now what happened was in 2001, um, a very famous Indian painter called F.N. Souza, uh, who was also an eccentric and lived in kind of semi-obscurity in New York, but I was a great fan of his, uh, was decided to exhibit his paintings in Calcutta in a gallery. And I went to the gallery and I... I was very drawn to this charcoal sketch he'd done uh, of, of a man. So I bought it. I found I could afford it. Prices still hadn't gone up for Sousa. It, it, it just cost 700 pounds. So I bought it. 55,000 rupees. I, I, I brought it back and hung it up in my drawing room. And, uh, and, and my uncle, who was in Calcutta then, visited me and said that, uh, I hear you fa you've paid 55,000 rupees for a... For a painting, can you show show it to me? And um, you know, I, I I took him to the to the to the charcoal sketch. He looked at it and he said, "You might as well have paid me fifty five thousand rupees for farting." Uh, <laughs> and, and, I, and I said, uh, "Come on, I mean, Souza is, is a great painter. I mean, can't you see what a what a wonderful sketch this is?" And 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 he said. Well, you know, I concede that what the genius produces and what the child or the idiot produces looks exactly the same sometimes. And, and I said, but it, the, the figure in it looks like you. And, and but, but he, having delivered that kind of insight, uh, left. And, and I kept on thinking about the fact that the figure looks like my uncle. It probably looks like my uncle because it is a self-portrait. Souza painted himself, and Souza looks a lot like my uncle. And Souza is actually like my uncle in many ways, very passionate, eccentric, lives by himself, it would seem, and uh, has sabotaged his career in many ways. Uh, but, uh, and it's, both of them are passionate about Tagore. Uh, my uncle loves Tagore passionately. Souza hates Tagore passionately. <laughs> <laughs> so there are many similarities between them. Uh, so I was thinking about all of this, the resemblance. And then I did think to myself, hang on, Sousa named the sketch Ulysses. Um, so, so then I, you know, so first time I began to think, could my uncle be Odysseus? You know, uh, and and I thought, yes, he is a kind of Odysseus. And 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 the, and the idea of recasting him as Odysseus and translating him, translating Odysseus into into a Bengali man in London came to me of course via James Joyce okay. the idea of bringing him into the contemporary world and um, and then it seemed that of course I was Telemachus you know and and, and I, because I had made those journeys from Warren Street to Belsize Park and would end up in the kitchenette uh, getting myself some water from a tap and I thought that that's Telemachus's journey you know uh, so then I thought, should I write, should I write something about this? And, and I just didn't want to commit myself to it. So ten years went by. Ten years, as somebody said to me, is the, is the span of time that Odysseus spent away from home. And, and then in 2002 to 2012, and 2012, I decided to take the plunge. So I first began to write it as a memoir. Okay. Uh, yeah. And I realized it's not going to work. So then I thought, how do I 
shape this as a narrative about a single day, which is how it might work. And and then I remembered the noisy neighbors I'd had who'd made my life a misery. <laughs> and I thought, these people are the suitors, you know? These are the suitors, and, and, and let me start with them. And, and, and that's how it began. And the other things began to fall in, in place. And then all the things to do with Homer and Stephen Dedalus helped me... Um, translate my own kind of amorphous experience of London in the 80s and my own sense of unhappiness and alienation and the kind of all the stuff to do with my meeting up with my uncle help me organize that into fictional terms uh, because I had otherwise I would have had no impulse to want to just report on what happened in London mm. but but I but I realized that the story of well, I mean, the uncle is a great ranter, but but uh, but 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 uh, uh, obviously the, the the nephew also is actually he he also has very strong likes and dislikes, and he is deeply alienated in in London, uh, and and that story of alienations right starting right from the alienation from Warren Street where he lives, the neighbours, but then London, white England. Live Aid, which he hates, and that's uh, this is the starting point. It opens with, it's with a memory, of memory of Live Aid, which happened five days earlier, <laughs> before before the beginning of the novel. So all of that echoes in my head Telemachus's uh, uh, alienation, his sense of being alienated, and and and, and also uh, Stevens' alienation from the legacy of the British Empire, uh, from even the English language. I mean, in in in, mm. in the portrait of uh, uh, portrait of the artist as a young man, there's a there's a scene in which he's talking to the dean, a, a priest, an English priest, and he reflects to himself that this language is so much more his than it is mine, and he thinks of certain words and he says to himself, these words sound different on his tongue; they belong more to him than they do to me, and that sense of this that lack of ownership uh, was also something that helped me. Um, translate my own experience of not being in control, of not possessing my home uh, into this particular. It, yeah. An example of that maybe the there's a scene where, uh, or a passage rather, where Ananda, who's your mm. proxy, your Daedalus, to, yeah. um, considers the opening of a Shakespeare sonnet, yeah. and which is incredibly familiar, mm. and probably every. Yeah. Uh, English school boy and school girl will, will be forced to read it at some point. Yeah. And the process of the reading is, is one of alienation mm. from a particular yeah, word, which is summer. Summer, yeah. I was very curious about, um, was that the sort of... Because on one hand, Ananda is deeply in love with all sorts of English um, and, and some American, mm. a Western tradition of, of poetry yeah. um, as part of his desire to be a poet. And at the same time, it seems to be that part of the process of this narrative is is, a, is a, the beginning of a consciousness that he's also not a part of it. Mm. Is, that, is, that, is that perhaps what that scene... Yeah, that, that, that scene is... Um, uh, well, that scene serves many kind of uh, functions, maybe. Though, I, of course, I didn't write it that way, but then also I had these levels mm. kind of playing in my head. So on, on the one hand, it is the unravelling of a, of a sonnet, uh, of, a, of a sonnet which is so familiar that it's become meaningless, <laughs> uh, and and then uh, unraveling the word summer, yeah. and 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 what it might mean to an Indian, and especially what it might mean post his discovery of summer in Britain, summer in England, 
which is the one thing that makes that day beautiful for Anandu. Uh, 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 because not every day in an English summer is particularly yeah yeah that that that's, that that summer's day is 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 kind of it is a it's a rainless day and and he um, it transforms everything in that world which otherwise alienates him into into something uh, that has its own kind of beauty um, and and, um, and so right from the start where he kind of pulls up the the window and allows the the breeze but also the sounds to come in is a part of that unraveling of the notion of summer in his head uh, into what it really is uh, taking it out from a kind of literariness into life putting it situating mm. it in life so it's performing that function it's also drawing our attention to the fact that that light is light is beautiful something that i didn't recognize or realize to that extent before i came to england and and um, and then grew very attached to light in all its real and symbolic meanings i think you say in the novel that it's you you learned it, that was the main thing you learned not more than, than more than going it. more than going to university and learning anything there i i learned about <laughs> language through the weather and i also learned about my love of light and my love of life through 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 london uh, but I kind of negatively or whatever, but 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 began to began to unpack these things over there. Was that also about a relationship with India that, in a way, you don't understand what light is until you see a different kind of light? So I'm thinking partly that could Joyce write about Dublin until, in a way, until he left? Yeah. I think Byron Triest, had to, uh, yeah. Yeah, Byron had to leave England before he really. It's Don Juan, which sort of channels. Yeah. Something that Shakespeare writes about England through Italy and can get all sorts of. Yeah. Was that a similar? Was this idea of exile? It must have been. It must have been. Um, uh, uh, it's. It's. I suppose the counterpart to, or as important as, what used to be said to be important, knowing more than one language and the literature of one language. Is to if you don't know more than one language, or even if you do, to know more than one way of life, uh, does help you to. Uh, it, it, uh, it does help to educate you, and I see, I see living, I see traveling and living in some ways coterminous or, or, or synonymous, uh, in a sense to the extent that both I see as primarily in the deepest sense of the, of the word educational. Right. Uh, I do see travel as educational, but not because you go and see the famous monuments. Yeah. Not because of that. Uh, or because you go to art galleries. But travel is always an education. Life actually is turning out to be an education. <laughs> because, because it teaches you everything you've read and everything you've learned is not true. So, so, so given that it runs counter to what you know, it, it is it is an education. So, uh, so you know, um, I think that process must have begun for me personally in Warren Street. I'm trying to capture that in 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 moments like that where I'm talking about the sonnet, um, and of course, I mean that's also a quick kind of reference to 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 Stevens' um, uh, over cerebral. Uh, uh, um, engagement with Shakespeare, okay. you know. So, so, so all those kind of, all those, all that kind of referencing is is uh, and and spoofing is is going on. And there is a touch of 
Hamlet as well, even in this novel about a relationship with an uncle that's, um, that has a frisson, there, there's, there are ghosts, there's a relationship between the uncle and the... Um, uh, his sister and his, and his brother. Yeah, yeah. Um, except for Ananda, it's it's the slight sense that he perhaps doesn't realise. I, I think there's very there's a, there's a very nice line about Stephen is that he thinks he's Hamlet but doesn't realise he's actually in a novel by James Joyce called Ulysses. That Ananda maybe doesn't realise he's quite a fictional character or the extent to which he's a fictional character, um, in as much as he's m- making himself up. He doesn't quite realise what it is about him. Yeah that is going to become useful, that he will in fact end up writing novels, perhaps, that he's so yeah. focused on yeah. on poetry. What, can I first ask, what was it about poetry that gripped, grips Ananda, but also grips, grips you at that, that right. time? Um, I, I, I think poetry continues to be my first love as, as a reader. As a reader, I would, I mean, if I knew that there was some new poetry for me to discover, which I hadn't read, um, even today, I mean, if, if, if like discovering, say, a German poet like Günther Eich by, in Michael Hoffman's uh, translations. I, I feel far more excited uh, uh, by, by such discoveries than anything I might encounter on the Booker Prize shortlist. <laughs> with good reason, with very good reason, because there's simply nothing there on the Booker Prize shortlist that compares with Günther Eich and, and Hoffman's translations. So it, I, I think what, what poetry can achieve in just... Um, throwing things off kilter and causing excitement. It's very difficult for a novel to do that, except paragraph by paragraph you can, you can try. Uh, my, my impulses have always been towards being a poet. Well, I'm not writing poetic prose, but, but to, to achieve that kind of excitement. What, what Wordsworth called uh, mild shocks of surprise from line to line. Um, that, that to me is the plot, you know. Um, so, so as I say, in a, in a kind of, again, in a kind of parody of and uh, Leopold Bloom um, reading tidbits uh, on, on the, uh, you know, it, while he's shitting. So, so the, the, there is a reference to Anando, who's not, in fact, the Odysseus char- character, uh, to Anando uh, reading poetry like, like thrillers, uh, <laughs> like poems like thrillers, on the, uh, <laughs> on, on the, on the toilet. Jeffrey Hill, I think. Jeffrey yeah. Hill, uh, to the supposed patron, he finds he can read and reread from start to finish in the in the duration of a shit or a crap and, and I imagine Jeffrey Hill would be relatively pleased he should be pleased having written Mercian uh, hymns uh, uh, but but um, so I found it addictive I think poetry is a form of addiction I, I mean like any form of addiction it um, it, it kind of um, redefines the way you inhabit time, uh, and, and, and and that's what poetry does. Your 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 prose requires attention, and uh, as opposed to say the, the sort of the pan horror books that yeah. um, uh, his uncle Radesh is, is is reading, yeah. which which we consume, we race through. Sure. Your prose requires a certain slowing and attention, mm. often going back over a paragraph. Yeah. Is that perhaps an influence of? Poetry, and you're saying what poetry does, it seems to slow things down and, and sometimes fracture and uh, lead us back in yeah. in time. Is, is that what poetry was? I think it must have. It, it, I think that's that's what it did uh, 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 to my to my writing. But um, um, and 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 it's that quality of addictiveness uh, which is which makes you fit only to produce and to read 
things which give you that that slowing down of time or or that alteration uh, of of our sense of time, so that actually when you when you read by and large when you read the consumable stuff where you have the on and on narrative in which things are following each other you find it befuddling <laughs> yeah you find that difficult to follow uh, so i think there are two different kinds of temperament uh, which are battling each other mm. uh, in in the world and each finds the other kind of bewildering uh, the, in that in that in a, i mean the the, the 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 kind of temperament which is drawn to that slowing down of time finds um, the the narrative very very boring uh, and 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 uh, the people drawn to narrative find that slowing down of time uh, uh, incomprehensible are we living in a time and i wonder if 1985 is partly a beginning of of a move away from that kind of enjoyment of slowness. It seems to be pop culture was the predominant uh, force. Um, you, you, and under his uh, hip-hop through the, the ceiling, Live Aid is, is the major sort of cult, cultural event. And, and, and yeah. 30 years yeah. later, we seem to be, whether it's through the internet, um, through a sort of glut of pop culture the, yeah. the, the place for poetry the place for literature maybe generally is is not as central as it was even in, in 1985 true, true. Um, um, I have to say that this, the, the laws that apply to what makes something because you know we're talking about slowing down but I find it not slow but deeply exciting what the, the things that I like the things I'm talking about and that's because there's a lot of activity going on in, in language you know, within those poems and uh, where, whether you look at those poems or at popular culture, the best popular culture also has a lot of activity going on inside it, which is not to do actually with plot or story, but just with the kind of transitions that are being made. And this is true of The Simpsons, for instance, or the best of The Simpsons, uh, or, you know, the best popular culture. And and the worst popular culture will have exactly the static qualities that the static uh, uh, um, narratives of of literary novels can have, you know? Um, So it's... So I, I'm, I, I won't sort of. This is not a. I, I won't make a kind of opposition between okay. popular and, and uh, culture and poetry. I w- I'll make a kind of. It, it's 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 a it's a different different ideas of what mm. constitutes movement and animatedness, um, which which I'm concerned with here. Uh, I think we're living in a fantastic time in terms of. But it's another story which isn't written about enough in terms of what the internet gives us. Uh, I think YouTube is an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. It's just astonishing what, what, you can, what you can sort of look at. And you can't even properly call it cons- consumption because you're doing it for free. Consumption is um, related to the idea of spending uh, and generating by spending a particular kind of uh, idea of the economy mm-hmm. uh, and, and of rewards. But here you're doing it for free and, mm-hmm. and people have posted those things for nothing. You know, there, there's some of them extremely valuable things which they're posted. There's an idea of share and culture, yeah, a sharing, shareable. Yeah, yeah. I also find when I was looking up some of your, I was listening to some of your music, right. and then, um, and also because of references to Tagore, I was listening to some of the interpretations of his work. And YouTube, YouTube has, you can then start to create your own maps. Your own maps. Yeah. Which is very important.